We'd uh, pretty much wrapped up the AYC coverage for 2023, but one of the um, one of the podcasts we really wanted to do and we had earmarked was to sort of talk about the tournament in general and then the performance pathways that come out of uh, these types of events and why they're important. So we went straight to two of the gentlemen who were um, intimately involved in setting it up and then having their eyeballs over it. Um, they both have the longest titles in the history of job titles. So the first of uh, our guests is Michael Crooks, who's the General Manager of Performance, Pathways and Player Development. Michael, thanks for stopping by today. Thanks, Stu. Pleasure to be on. And uh, and arguably our most uh, frequent podcaster, Andrew Riddell, who's the National Player Development Man- Manager. Andrew, it's good to have you back as well. Good to be back, Stu. Hopefully you quick record today. That's always a good start for you. Yeah, I do, the red button's on, which is, is uh, a key performance indicator for me uh, on this end, having missed it a few times. Um, gents, you've both taken a well-deserved break uh, after the AY season, both back on deck now. Um, I guess you take a break because it's a pretty frenetic period of time. Um, just sort of lifting up the skirt on this thing like how much effort goes into coordinating something like this we had 14 teams uh 280 players coaches support staff you know it's not a small undertaking Uh, how many people work behind the scenes to make the magic happen yeah it's it's a pretty intensive process we kicked off the planning for the january event literally the day after uh the under 16s in redcliffe in july so We've basically spent uh, six months on it. Uh, it's about 400 hours worth of work um, from about oh, six or seven stake, oh, six or seven staff internally. Um, but when we start to factor in uh, the role that Baseball New South Wales plays in the events, um, obviously the coordination back to the state association, there's there's a good you know 40 to 50 people across all the teams and across all the states that, that make this event happen in the planning and preparation phase. And there's about another 60 um, at the tournament itself that, that run the event. It's all well and good to say it's a national tournament, you, your state rolls in and you, you know, you're playing to win a national tournament and that, that's a primary goal. But what are the, I guess, what are the threads that are attached to this? Obviously, and this is something we want to dive into a little bit later on, is national team mm. selection. But, um, and we've got a World Baseball Classic that's about to happen and the vast majority of players would have come through this type of junior development. But I suppose... The question I have for you is why are these type of tournaments, why are they important? It's a great question, Stu, and I was, I was actually talking to someone earlier today about this that um, I think sometimes we can get a little bit lost as to why we actually run these events. From Baseball Australia's perspective, there's three primary goals that we're trying to achieve. The first one is the most obvious one, which is development of our talented young players across the country and try and maximise their ability within the sport long term. Um, you know, that can take on... Yeah, many shades and colours based on the abilities of each individual and what their, their goals actually look like longer term. And our job is to try and use this event and the preparation with the states um, leading into the event to try and get the most out of these kids and the timelines we have available to them. The second one is to, to try and facilitate high level of competition uh, for the talented kids against their peers. Within Australia, obviously, the only way we can do that is at a national level. Um, I'll get to the secondary element of that in a, in a little bit as we start talking about the national teams. Um, but the third one, um, which is 
somewhere which I think we've improved a lot the last 12 months and really coming off COVID is to try and provide a great experience for the players at a national event rather than just being the games um, themselves. We're trying to add all those layers to it that sit around it, such as the media exposure, such as the broadcasting, such as uh, our partnerships um, that try and enhance, I guess, the overall experience that all the stakeholders have. And then there's, there's three sort of spin-offs that come from that. Um, one in the more global sense is to provide education for the players and coaches officials on and off the field. So we did that with educational courses within the, the tournament itself for our coaches. Driveline helped us facilitate those. Andrew led uh, a bunch of college talks, etc. cetera. Uh, Brett Robertson, who heads up our umpires, obviously uh, worked with, with the umpires behind the scenes and Vera worked with our scorers. So we, we try, and, uh, try and embed the education right throughout every person who attends that event to make sure someone's taking something away. Second spin-off is obviously exposure for players to move on to college professional and ABL environments, a real critical role um, that the event plays. And then finally, as a spin-off, uh, a vehicle for national team selection. It was a way more detailed uh, mm-hmm. overview than I'd anticipated there. Michael, well done. <laughs> the, um, the, the piece that's, that sort of opened my eyes when I was there was the – there's a volume of scouts. There are people eyeballing players to, um, you know, for college opportunities, those types of things. And it, it, it is more than just we're showing up and playing baseball. There are multiple avenues. You know, Andrew, maybe this is a question for you because you're intimately involved, particularly in the college side of things. You know, like a week or two-week tournament like this, is, that, is it a viable opportunity for players to be signed or to sort of – create a college opportunity for themselves? Is, is this a really tangible way for those opportunities to open open up? Yeah, absolutely. And I think without going into detail, this year showed probably more than the last previous years without Nationals of how um, evident and, and real life that is. And I think off the back of Nationals, even speaking with the professional scouts that were there, there's clubs now that are interested in players that may not have even been on their radar when they got to Nationals. So I think coming off COVID and especially in this age group with the under-18s and some of the players that were able to have good weeks and um, really show what they could do on the field, then now it's the professional scout's job to then go and get to know those players off the field and get to know their parents and things like that to understand who they are as people. Um, there's already clubs that are interested in, in taking players overseas to their academies. They're um, looking at bringing them in for private workouts in their own state environment. So just from having that kind of good week on and off the field as a young player has now opened the doors to them professionally uh, with the scouts that are in Australia taking a look at them and the upcoming international signing period that's now upon us to be able to then get them uh, to, to, to the next step and, and ready for the next level, whether it's signing a professional contract or even just having conversations with them to step them through the process of what it may look like in the future. Um, and, and that kind of week and getting to meet those professional scouts and have those conversations, even getting the chance to ask questions around what they're looking for. Um, Michael touched on the, the educational nights that we did. We actually had a professional scout come in one of the nights and speak to the under-18 age group as well around as a scout, what are they looking for there? What are they in the stands with their stopwatches and their radar guns and things like that? What are they actually looking for and what they can do as a player to stand out? 
So I think across the week, players were able to ask questions, get a lot of answers, learn a little bit more about the professional landscape. And then the top players throughout that week that were able to put on a show have now started really in-depth conversations that may lead to a professional contract down the track. I don't want to push the nerd alert button right now because I don't think we're going to get too nerdy, but it was quite interesting being around the tournament where you know some of these kids are taking batting practice and they weren't. It wasn't the greatest round of their, their life and they sort of dropped their head and they would, you know, that's it, I'm never going to sign a pro deal. Can you can you both sort of touch on, like, this isn't, for some scouts, this is maybe the first time they see see a kid and they're like, oh, that, that kid's got talent. Um, you know, for others, you know, and you could see it, like a, a potentially a live arm was going on one of the backfields and every scout would just pick up and go to the next field to go and watch that. I, I think... I think what a lot of young players don't understand is the depth of coverage that exists across baseball. So the tournament might be, it's a consolidation for a kid who's already on the radar. It's an opportunity for a kid to pop up who may never have been seen before, but it's not your only chance. Um, How do scouts and how how is talent mapped across the game? I think it'd be useful. I wasn't planning on going to this conversation this early in the podcast, but yeah, how, how is talent mapped so that, kids understand or can understand that you know you've got more than one shot to be seen it's a great thing to explore Stu, because i think there are there are a couple of things that occur in these tournaments there's a situation where we can get caught up in the here and now for performance in any one day or one at bat or one pitching outing etc and then there's a broader perspective that um the scouts whether it be college whether it be professional whether it be our roles in baseball australia the perspective we have is that we're still dealing with kids. Kids develop at different rates. They progress. They regress. Their development occurs over a series of years. It's never one uh, performance in isolation. And the analogy I try to use um, when we're talking about development of young players is we're trying to play the long-term stock market. What we want to see is, is steady, reasonable, incremental improvements over a period of time, understanding that the stock market goes up and down, just like performances go up and down. And what we're looking for is that plus five years, plus 10 years, plus 15 years. What's the return of the investment for that player in their own development in terms of the hard work they put in, the dedication to their game, how much they're learning, how much they're improving? And the performance will speak for itself when they're 24, 25, 26 years of age and they've been investing in themselves over that timeline rather than getting caught up in that single performance now. Trust me, we have more than enough footage and more than enough exposure for all those kids that play that event where any scout can go back and look at that footage over time and compare what that incremental change can look like over time. And the scouts are really good and disciplined in, in, in understanding that they're playing the long game as well. Um, I guess the other the other bit that I'm... Um while we're on this sort of theme as well, like Australian team selection, I really want to dive into Australian team selection a little bit later on, but I guess you're also trying to do the same thing as this kid has some tools or this kid has some ability, when would we fold them into the Australian program? So it's not just your only avenue is professional baseball out of this. You know, there's college angles as well, and Andrew, you look after the college side of things, but there's also national team selection, there's high-performance selection that comes out of this as well because almost every team has some sort of a representative of their high performance program as well there as well so it's very much a holistic development program for young players attending something like this um you know for this year but also for their future as well yeah absolutely and i think just just touching on even what michael just said then around the week and and the changes and i think it starts on the first day we held those showcases and i think everybody puts a lot of emphasis and i know the players 
Is, um, obviously do put a lot of emphasis on it, but there was players who performed well at that showcase day. For example, they might have run well in their 60 time and then we get to game one or game two and they hit a fly ball, they hit a ball to the outfield and they don't run up the line hard. So there's some, there's some stuff there that carries over and the showcase portion of it and some of these things that the scouts see is just a very small portion of becoming the ultimate player that they want to see. And I think from running these nationals and being able to watch the players and then see them transition into actual gameplay is really important and definitely more important than what you did on the showcase stage. So I think a lot of emphasis gets made on, oh, I might not have trialed well, I might not have showcased well, but then you come out and you hit 600 for the week and nobody remembers what you did on the showcase day. And in comparison to that, you might have showcased really well and then you may have had not that good of a week or you may not have busted your butt up the line and that's what gets written down by scouts. So I think it's a comparison of the two of the two of them and being able to play the game is the most important thing. And I think for, whether it's us watching or whether it's professional scouts or college coaches, etc., um, there's a lot that goes into a player and the player they become in 5, 10, 15 years, like Michael said, and um, being able to carry those showcase days over, being able to carry it over from a first-year under-16s player to a to a second-year under-18s player four years later and to be able to see those changes is the most important part. So um, I think from uh, from the outside uh, looking in, from the, the scouts that are there, the high-performance managers that are also there watching their states play, it's being able to watch that player play the game, pick up the little things, baseball IQ, are you making the right decisions, cutoffs and relays, are you hustling, all those little kind of things that you can then project the player as their overall skill set progresses. Yeah, I think one of the um, interesting tidbits I took from sort of standing on the periphery of the showcase was, you know, like running's a great example is the kid comes out of nowhere that runs a really good time. And that was almost, that was a tick next to their name that then gave the scout a reason to pay even more attention to that kid during the games. Like, oh, let's see if they can back that up or replicate it. And I think um, I, I wanted to dive into the showcase piece because there was a lot of, not conjecture, but it's like, well, what's the value of it? Some players don't understand, others completely get that it sort of separates the two parts of the game um you're like in a perfect world how would you run a tournament like this obviously these are quite condensed they're squashed into a small period of time double headers every day like what what's the optimal setup if money was no um objective what would be the optimal setup to do this well I can tell you from an organisational perspective, it's not running 12 games on three fields a day. It's exhausting. Um, look, we've moved to a condensed schedule because we have some real challenges moving people around the country to make it financially affordable for everyone, uh, to try and get the, the events done in a reasonable timeline um, and trying to manage the fact that, you know, families turn up as well. It's not just the, the kid that's turning up to play. Quite often you've got mum, dad and a, and a sibling that's turning up. It gets incredibly expensive really quickly. So we try and manage the schedule the best we can to maximise every minute that those kids have at the event and try and give them a good experience every minute um, while still uh, being really cognizant of the fact that they are young, they need to recover, they need to get their rest, et cetera. What that will do, that will inevitably mean that we need to compromise what is the ideal of, of, of some activities over others. For example, um, you know, we, we, we don't necessarily want to have two days of showcases um, 
two days before the tournament. But the only way we can fit that in the schedule and get these guys peer matching is if we do that. Then we try and stagger that so the throwing activities are two days before the tournament. So you know we we lessen the risk of of anyone being stiff and sore. You know we keep the the batting practice stuff for the day before, which is what teams will already be doing anyway. And we try and and just eke out uh, you know what is the the best compromise we can get for the kids to show, showcase their talents. Um, ideally, if money wasn't an option, I'd love to go back to the old two week tournaments um, where we're playing a, a single header every every day. It's just not viable for us um, in, in the present time or in the near future. Um, and to, to do so would nearly double the cost for everyone. That's just not realistic. Mm. Well, I guess it'd be good to dive into the tournament. And, and this is, I suppose, Two, two sets of eyeballs who were, you know, hunting for performance and, and ways to make things better. What, I guess, what were some of the highlights for you guys from the tournament? Um, you know, it could be individual performance. You know, it's always hard to name names, but, you know, were the teams that surprised? What were some of the things that really stood out to you guys in watching this? The most critical one for me, which I was most impressed about, was actually how even the competition was, in particular the under 18s. It was staggeringly close right across the event. Um, and you would cut the tension with a knife going into that last day of the, the round robin component of it. Um, and the way that those games panned out, I think we worked out that morning, Andrew, didn't we? There was like 7,000 combinations of, of results that could occur off the back end of it. We threw our hands in the air trying to predict what was about to happen. Um, and, then he, and then moving into the second round, exactly the same thing happened again. So the fact that every game was important in that tournament um, really met a key objective that we're, we're trying to work on with the state associations. Um, and, and, and while the elements of the 16s were sorted out a little bit soon, it was still a very good quality event. So coming off a couple of years of COVID, I was probably pleasantly surprised at how even it was around the country um, and, and how good the competition was. I thought there was a, a, a good step up in some basic skills, which was concerning me from what I saw in July with the under-16s. Um, so just a, a, a summer of baseball under their belt. It, it's amazing how, how much of an adjustment kids can make. Andrew? Yeah, and I'll second some of that. Um, I think, obviously, you touched on the under-18s a little bit. I was standing out on Diamond 2, and in the space of about 15 minutes, there was two teams playing on Diamond 1. One of them was up 9 to nothing, and they were going to be the 2 seed, and the other team was going to be the 5 seed. And in the space of 10 minutes, they came back. They walked off that team 10-9. And then they also needed on the backfield a team that was down 7-3 to three with two outs in the bottom of the last inning to score five runs without getting an out, which they did. And they needed on the other field what the undefeated one seed to lose. So all of those three things needed to happen within the space of 15 minutes to... For, for one team to go from the two seed to the five seed and the five seed was now the one seed for the for the playoffs. So I think, like Michael said, the how close the tournament was all week was incredible. Um, I think it's a credit to all the teams across the country, all seven of them that were able to compete at a really high level because there were a lot of teams that were involved that were a run, a run for or against or a walk-off win here or there from being the one seed that then might have been the six or seven seed. So I think that was huge. And I think from the under-16 standpoint, obviously with COVID, we had under-16s in Redcliffe in July. Um, most of those players then pushed up to the under-18s for January. Um, so that under-16 age group in this this one just gone in January were very new. There were a lot of players that we hadn't seen. 
Um, and in the two years through COVID, like Michael said, the fundamentals that we saw, I think, at the under-16s in January was a lot better than what we saw in July. Um, now, whether that's because of the time off, et cetera, through COVID, um, I was also pleasantly surprised with some of the players in the under-16s that were able to compete at a high level. The baseball IQ was was a lot higher um, from the games that they have been able to play. And just making the right decisions on plays, um, cutoffs and relays, and, and making sure they're throwing to the right bases, and just some generic, really basic things that were done a lot better, I think, um, in the under-16 age group in January. Well, it's reassuring to have a couple of math whizzes like you two calculating permutations um, right up to the last minute so everyone um, can know that it's in good hands and the right teams went through. Um, I'm going to make a statement here and setting myself up to be absolutely dunked on. But one of the things that sort of caught my attention and a lot of a lot of this came through in the podcast with the coaches and, and I, I sort of asked the coaches, you know, how are you going to handle velocity? You're going to see better velocity. And they'd, they'd almost all of them had commented, well, we're doing more to sort of hit against higher velocity. I was struck by, you know, back in my day and it's showing my age, like if a kid showed up and was in the 90s, they were just almost untouchable. And in this tournament, we saw kids who could dial it up we saw we saw offenses handle it quite well. Is that because of better training, or or did I just miss that completely? Did that not occur? Like it just seemed like there's been some advances in the way we're preparing players that allow them to be better ready when they get to these tournaments. Yeah, look, Stu, I, I think you and I are a, a, a similar vintage, um, and if we look back on on the training programs that are in place and how players were prepared when we were coming through the system versus how players prepared now, you wouldn't recognize the training session. Um, we have tools available to our uh, to us um, on a daily basis that can simulate velocities at, at, for any level of baseball, but not just that. Like we can simulate movement patterns. We can simulate spin rates. We can, we can simulate basically anything that you see on the field and, and incorporating those technologies into the training sessions um, where we're, we're basically conditioning the players to, to see and react to things um, that are above the pace of what they'll see within the games themselves um, and give them the volume of that so it becomes relatively normal for them. It's relatively simple for us to do these days. That coupled with you know, our better technical training um, and the, the the way in which we sort of map out that progression across the year, um, it's, a, it's a really pleasant observation to hear, actually, to be honest with you, that that's what you observe, um, because I know that is an absolute goal that the coaches are putting in place across the country. I'm glad I was paying attention to the right things, and that's good. Um, <laughs> um, what um, I suppose I really want to get into national team selection, and, and I know you guys – you're looking from the first moment the kids show up to the field, and, and I appreciate you probably can't name names just yet because the team hasn't been announced, but how does the national team wash out from this? I know there's an under-18 World Cup this year, so you'll obviously be looking to fill that team out, um, and that's not – I had an interesting sort of conversation at the tournament with Andrew where there's kids in the under-16s who may be putting their hand up to be selected onto that, but is there a, is the national teams for kids in the under-16s? How does, how does the national team structure work? And then – from a panel, um, how do you go about starting to formulate a squad based on this performance? Like, how does that all come together? Yeah. So I think there's, there's, there's two components to it that we, we really do need to understand. The first is the strategic objectives. 
So what do we actually want to get out of our national junior programs and under 18 and under 16 level? That sort of underpins um, all the decisions that we make. So the, the obvious one that's sitting in front of us uh, for this year is, is the World Cup. But that can't be the be all and end all of what our focus is. So if we regress from that, what does our pre-departure camp look like? How many players do we need at that event? Regress further back from that. Well, how many people do we need in each environment to, to ensure that uh, we're driving results within that local environment? Regress back from that. How much time off do the players need at the end of the summer season? How much time do they need to spend on their physical attributes? And this is the kind of stuff that uh, we were trying to teach uh, uh, the coaches at the AYCs when we had driveline in time. We, we spent a fair bit of time within the AYCs trying to map that out. Um, Andrew, myself, and, and Shane Watson, we have a, a full strategy day next Monday working on this exact problem. Um, the under-16s, is a slightly different year for them. Obviously, there's no World Cup for them this year. So what do the activities look like for that group, um, knowing that um, some of those players have come through two AYCs in a six-month period of time? Uh, we know they still need their rest and recovery as well, as well, but where does that fit in with, say, some of those kids that might be going to senior league? Or how does that fit in against um, what what their appropriate break, break looks like in the off-season and ramping them up to getting back on field again? potentially have events um, at a reasonable price point that gives them the highest level of competition they can be exposed to develop their skills. So that's the pragmatic strategic piece as opposed to then the operational piece is, all right, what's the process then of selection? Uh, we've, we've got a very robust selection policy that helps guide us through that. What is this balance that we are talking about before of raw skills that we can identify with a showcase versus the ability for players to play the game and how do we, I guess, shift the slider on that spectrum um, to try and have our focus on the right players at the right stage of their development to try and maximise um, their development over the next 12 months. Andrew, any comments from you on that team selection side of things? Um, I th- no, I think obviously Michael touched on a lot of it in the upcoming year. Um, I think the under-18 group obviously being a World Cup year, the national squad that will be selected will um, be be known and we'll be getting ready for camp later in the year. And I think obviously after we meet Monday, that'll be a lot clearer um, as to the number um, of athletes that we do go with. But I think also having that open throughout the year, obviously with our seasons and, and how our tournaments are set up and with the tournament being in January and the World Cup not being until September, there is a big gap um, that occurs throughout. So I think being able to keep that open and, and the players understanding that players will be able to get added to the squad throughout the year um, is going to enable them to be able to keep developing in their state environments, knowing that it is still possible to be able to get added to that camp um, that will be later in the year. And I think obviously as we get closer to that camp and, and we keep adding players and things like that to that to try and get to the final number, then when we do get to camp later in the year in August, we will be able to then have the right amount of players and that, what players that are ready then and there ready to go. And I think with us having national camp later in the year, it then enables that camp to be had, guys to go at it for however many days it is. And then we're taking the best twenty on the plane for that week. I think um, there's some, you know, we obviously had some interesting conversations during the tournament. Um, you know, and Andrew, you and I particularly, you know, there was a couple of players where you felt probably leading into national team they were, they were fringy, and then they they did the work over the sort of 
interim period between this tournament and going away and then played key roles representing their country. So there's, there is opportunity, I suppose, with this time frame for players to kind of force their way in and become a key contributor. And one of those players actually was um, – he was one of the players that scouts all jumped up out of their seats and headed off to a backfield to watch because he sort of thrust himself into the mix. Um, without naming names, of course, were there, were there kids at this tournament that you just – they weren't on the radar that all of a sudden you, they do the showcase or they perform and you're like, whoa, we need to, we need to fold this kid in. Like, you know, what sort of, there may only be one or two or there may have been five to 10, but you know, surely there was players that really forced a selector's hand saying, well, hang on that performance, that really warrants consideration. Yeah, absolutely. And I think obviously off the back of last year, we had um, our world cup campaign in the U S and then we also had the 16 nationals in Redcliffe. So we had to come together and pick 20 to go to the qualifiers in New Zealand. Um, so those 20 were obviously known and whatever it may, whatever you may call it when we got there. Um, but there were a lot of unknown players, for example, that when we got to nationals, we knew their names. We had heard things about them from their high performance managers about how well they had been in their state environments. And then when we got there, we got to actually see them get peer matched against each other to see where they stack up. So I think for some of those players too, and, and I've told even the guys that came to the qualifiers that, yes, we've now qualified for the World Cup and you were part of that 20, but when we get to nationals, it's a clean slate and you guys have to perform just as much as the players who weren't selected in this group because there'll be players that will outplay you at nationals that are then going to get selected in the in the squad. So I think that was really... Um, it was, it was really good to see when we got there in January, some of the players that we'd heard about that might be in high performance programs back in their own cities to be able to then watch them play against somebody that we had just had in the Australian team in New Zealand at the qualifiers. So that was, I think, from my perspective, really good to see, hey, we had this guy in our squad and he was part of our campaign to the US last year. But we've also got some guys that have now pushed into the age group or in our second year players, for example, that didn't have a nationals last year in under 18s that are now at the forefront of, of the plans for the national squad. Gents, I've, if I'm not remembering to hit the record button, I'm also running out of podcast memory space. So we have limited time left um, <laughs> and you've both got busy schedules. How do we make these tournaments better? Last question. What else can we do? I'll give you three okay. uh, from my perspective. I told you I've got limited, uh, I've got limited capacity. No, here, so they'll, be, they'll be quick, buddy. They'll be quick. Uh, the, the, the first one is um, the overall development, the high depth of the squad. Um, so obviously the, the the better the quality for each or the each team's putting out in the field, the better the quality of the, the tournament. Now that that is a partnership relationship between the states and us to achieve that. That moves directly into the second component, which is the development of our coaches. Uh, we are committed to, to trying to support the, the state team coaches as much as humanly possible uh, uh, for future tournaments, and, and that investment started with the, the courses that we did at this event just gone past. The second one is, is being very, very clear on what success looks like um, and helping the coaches and players understand um, what skills are required to succeed at high levels of baseball and have them working towards those goals and those targets in their development programs in the off-season and in the state team preparations to, uh, to achieve that, that level of quality we think is going to transition them uh, to high-level environments. Well, gents, um, 
you occupy thankless roles where it's pretty easy to criticise when something doesn't go right at this tournament um, and it's hard to come and say thank you very much, but I did want to acknowledge the amount of time and effort you guys put in that very few people actually see. It was a thousand moving parts to try and get the thing up and running. You guys carried a massive load and uh, just take this opportunity to say thank you very much on behalf of um, players and coaches who participated because it was an awesome um experience and uh, I think it allowed players really to put the best foot forward. So thanks very much, fellas, and um, hopefully we can do it again next year. Thanks, Hugh, and, and thanks to you and Montana for your support as well. And I'll just sign off by saying yeah, thanks once again to our tremendous volunteers that, and, and spectators and parents and families that supported the event. Uh, it can't go ahead without their support. Appreciate yeah, I'll, I'll, second, I'll second that from a volunteer standpoint and I'll also say a big thank you to Montana for carrying you throughout the whole tournament. So <laughs> thank you, Montana. Surround yourself with people who are smarter than you, that's what I always say. Thanks, gents. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate.